Hello, this is Key Ideas, and I'm your host, Leela Viss. This podcast contemplates the rhythm of life as a piano teacher and music maker. Through illuminating interviews and transparent reflections, you'll feel validated, encouraged, and empowered. This is episode 66, and it's sponsored by Forte Lessons. Here's why I'm completely on board with Forte for my online lessons. First, Forte Studio is totally free to use for all your existing students, both for online and for those sick days. The audio was made for online music lessons and sounds so much better than Zoom. It's simple to use and easy to get students going. It's very user-friendly. You can easily use your mobile phone as a second simultaneous camera. It's pretty cool. It uses a QR code. And Forte allows you to record your lessons and share them with your students. Look, it's good enough for schools like Berklee College of Music, Curtis Institute of Music, and the Royal College of Music in London. If it's good enough for them, I think you'll love it as well. Again, this is episode 66. It's because of our son Carter's accident on Thanksgiving 2019 that I air this conversation with Vancouver journalist Adriana Barton. She and I connected after an introduction by Gary Ross. Gary Ross wrote an article for the Reader's Digest about Carter and the accident that took his right arm and almost both legs. While interviewing our family for the story, Gary learned that Carter and I were musicians and that we both found solace and healing through our music making. It turns out that at the time, Gary's colleague, Adriana, was writing a book about the many ways music heals, restores, and shapes us. He shared her info with me, and eventually we connected. Adriana interviewed me about my experience with trauma and music, and I'm pleased that Carter's story is included in her recently published book, Wired for Music. Now I gotta admit, that's about the most indirect and unfortunate way to secure a podcast guest. And yet I'm thrilled that we met and pleased to have Adriana join me to discuss her book. I own both the audio and Kindle versions. Wired for Music is one I will go back to again and again. I know you will appreciate its duality as Adriana summarizes the current understanding of music and health and reveals her vulnerability as an injured musician and music lover. Before we get started with the conversation, I want to share a glimpse of Adriana's musical background. Adriana was a promising cello player and landed a chance to study at the Cleveland Institute of Music. I won't give it all away, but here's an inside peek into her experience taken directly from the pages in her book. Adriana writes, As a little girl, I wanted to be good, But most of all, I wanted to have pleasure playing the cello. By the age of 13, I had spent more than 340 hours in a room with my teacher, who was a professional cello player. He asked the same question every week. How much did you practice? We became like an embittered old couple, constantly finding fault with each other. And so I left him for another teacher. My early training taught me that nothing short of flawless could ever be good enough. Because I want you to read her book and listen to this podcast, I won't spoil things by sharing more of her story or her research findings. Among many others, I know you'll be eager to hear Adriana's answer to this question. What is the neurological argument for avoiding the stringent teaching approaches found in the traditional conservatory model? (laughs) Wow, stay tuned. 
Our conversation covers a vast territory of topics related to the brain and music, and I know you will find it valuable and validating as a musician, a teacher, and a human being. But first, here's more about Adriana. Adriana Barton is a journalist specializing in health and the author of Wired for Music, a search for health and joy through the science of sound, Greystone Books, 2022. A former staff reporter at the Globe and Mail, she has written about medical research, neuroscience, visual arts, architecture, music, and pop culture for publications including the Boston Globe, Reader's Digest, Utni, Azure, Western Living, and San Francisco Bay Guardian. Adriana studied the cello for 17 years with teachers including international solo artist Antonio Lisi and former Cleveland Orchestra principal cellist Stephen Gaber. Research projects have taken her to Syria, Jordan, India, Cuba, Zimbabwe, and Brazil. She lives in Vancouver with her husband and son. Now, here's Leela with Adriana. Welcome, Adriana. So nice to have you here, and I'm a huge fan of your book. And I think I would have stumbled across it somewhere because it probably would have shown up in my Amazon feed or something, but that's not how I came across your book. So thank you, number one, for being here. And then uh, tell us, uh, my listeners, how you and I connected. Well, I have to admit that you are one of the people I wanted to love my book most <laughs> because I, I had no idea how it would read for you. You are such an informed and uh, delightful musician and someone who has immersed your, yourself in this world for years of most of your life, I would imagine. But more so, you were so generous and touching in telling your story, your family's story, what it was like to go through Carter's ordeal and his accident, that it was, you know, I, I it was very important to me that the book speak to you. And, and I didn't, as you know, I didn't kind of fish for feedback or anything, but I, I, I really wanted it to to do for you what you did for the book, which was to be a heartfelt experience in reading it. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. And it, you, what we had a commonality or a common friend, I, probably more of an acquaintance for me, uh, Gary Ross. And uh, that's what made this so interesting is that he had written an article about Carter and then he and I had been conversing and he asked me if he could introduce me to you. And I thought, well, okay. And then it was so fascinating to hear what your project was and why you wanted to reach out. So tell my listeners a little bit about your project. Well, it was a big project that consumed years of my life, as you can imagine. Uh, mm -hmm. It started out very differently from how it ended up. Mm -hmm. So uh, this this book started, uh, I, if you can picture me as a, a harried journalist at Canada's national newspaper covering all kinds of health topics, neuroscience and mental health and, you know, liver disease and what, whatever you can imagine in that role. Uh, I, I was deeply fascinated in the studies coming out about music in the brain. Uh, music and the brain, because as you know, I, I have a background as a musician. It wasn't an active part of my life, really, as a journalist, although it was coming back into my life. And 
how it was to play music as an adult, approaching it in a different way, felt so entirely different that I, I felt uh, compelled to understand more what was happening in my brain, what had happened to me as a child. Um, so, but nevertheless, it, the book started as an application uh, to a PhD program in ethnomusicology. Mm -hmm. And my plan was to write a book on the parallels between the new neuroscience findings about music, health, and the brain, and age-old practices and interventions in cultures around the world using music as medicine. I wanted to compare these two things. So I, I applied for this PhD program. I was accepted. I was offered a spot, but I got cold feet. Mm. And I got cold feet because I uh, uh, a neighbor said, you know, who, who'd done her PhD in, in a similar program said, you know, take a while reading the theses that will come out of this program done by by previous people and ask yourself, is that what you want to dedicate the next five, six years of your life in doing? And I was a journalist used to being read and used to engaging with, with people around my work. And when I read these theses, I thought, wow, like these are going, my, my the, the product of my work will sit there and maybe 20 people will read it and that will be devastating. <laughs> so, and also my child was young and I thought, how am I going to make this work financially, you know, that PhD wouldn't have been well funded. And I'd be, you know, going to the university all the time. What how is that going to work? So I walked away from that opportunity that I'd created for myself. And it takes a while to apply for a PhD, their essays there. But I did quite a bit of reading and research just to put together that idea. And then lo and behold, a, a publisher some months later, uh, invited me for coffee and said, Do you have any book ideas? And I gave a few ideas. And he said, well, those all sound reasonable and saleable. Got anything else? And I said, well, just this geeky interest that no one else has. And and I explained it to him. And then I randomly mentioned that I'd played the cello. And that's when he was hooked. And he said, well, you know, that's the book. Your eyes are lighting up. My eyes are lighting up. This is the book. And so then still I was on that tack of, of comparing cultures and that kind of thing and maybe put slapping something of my personal story in the introduction perhaps uh I'm not going to drag you through the whole process there were other publishers involved uh, agent uh, other iterations of the book but I got increasing um encouragement slash pressure to really weave my story through the book and this was my own decision I decided and I'm so glad I made the, this decision that I really wasn't the person to um, portray traditional practices to the world, that, that that messaging had to come from the people from those cultures and those places. I could mention them in passing, but exploring them wasn't really my place. Mm -hmm. And so the book became more of an exploration of Western European societies, our interactions with music, how that has built an incredible repository of musical knowledge, but also changed how we interact with music in ways that aren't always positive. I also did a a deep dive into uh, my own, you know, uh, mixed feelings about the training I've had and um, I guess some of the, the joys and pains of music in my own life and my own journey out of that. So sorry, that was a long answer. <laughs> well, oh, there's so many directions I want to go. First of all, your neighbor had a huge impact on the direction of your life. That's quite something. Mm. So bravo to your neighbor. Uh, and then 
I think that's what is so intriguing to me about your book, because, okay, here comes another book on music. And really, honestly, I, f I find them all fascinating, but sometimes it's really small print and it gets really detailed and it's, it, it's over my head. It's probably not what I'm interested in, but it doesn't connect with me. But this book gave me information. It gave me uh, all kinds of, uh, what, the, what science is saying now about the music in the brain, but it also gave me validation in so many ways. I don't know if you really planned on doing that, but oh my goodness, you were speaking my language, especially in chapter three. I just had to listen to chapter three a number of times. Uh, and because I had the audiobook and I do have it printed as well, but there were so many things that you said in chapter three that resonated with me as a classical musician. So can we go there next? Please you remember. Yes. Do you remember what you yeah. said in chapter three? <laughs> well, I, I, I actually can remember every single passage and probably almost every se single oh, sentence. I Unfortunately, I revised it, the book so much, mm. so much, so many mm -hmm. times that, uh, yeah, you could probably identify any paragraph and I could tell you what was in it. So go ahead. I'm not lost. <laughs> well, and what was fascinating to me is within that chapter, you talked about your own personal experience, then took a deep dive of where music came from and then how music morphed and even became something that was not good anymore in, in some cultures. And so that's, it, it truly was fascinating, but yes, I interrupted you. Keep going. <laughs> Oh, I, I didn't mean to say not good. That that is it, not no, okay. I but, shouldn't say but that. Yes. I, I would say formalized in a way that that interrupts some of our innate wiring for music uh, and has distanced people from their own innate mm. affinity for music uh, in a way that is unfortunate and that you don't see in, in all parts of the world. So this line we have between spectator and audience is so hard it's so separate it's so formal this idea of sitting in an auditorium motionless when you know as i say in the introduction we now know that in an mri uh, mri machine if you're listening to music the putamen which is a part of the brain that's involved in motor uh, activity is stimulated by music. We we literally want to dance and move to music. We are wired to do that for deep evolutionary reasons. And so it's it's quite strange when you see it's fairly recent centuries that we've been expected to be motionless uh, listening to music in that way. And it's quite unnatural for our species. So that's one idea that's in that chapter among many others. Yes. Well, but, let's, let, can we head back down to your own personal experience? Because sure. you call yourself, like, what is your title now? Would you call yourself a reporter, obviously an author? I call myself a journalist and an amateur musician. And oh, okay. amateur, as you know, from reading my book, it's a, a word I would like people to reclaim because mm -hmm. we in 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 America and Canada, a rank amateur, amateur sports is not as good as professional sports or it, it has a negative connotation to be an amateur means you're not very good. But in say I, I went I, our family spent a year in France and we traveled to Italy and Portugal and all of that kind of thing and there amateur is used in the original sense because the root of the word is amare to love mm -hmm. so an amateur is somebody who loves doing something who does it for the joy 
So I have tried to, in my self-definition and self-concept, to celebrate being an amateur musician. I, I do music because I love it and it gives me joy. I am not a professional musician. At one point, I was trained to be one, as you know, but mm -hmm. uh, that's how I would identify myself now, a, a, a journalist and an amateur musician. And I'm very much a dabbler now as a musician. Mm -hmm. And I don't play any instrument particularly well now. Um, and at, at one point, I, I joked that I should call my book Playing Badly. <laughs> <laughs> because I, I want to encourage people to imagine that playing badly is not the worst outcome and play not playing at all and not participating at all in my opinion is the worst outcome mm. and that's what I took away too when you visited other cultures other countries how people were just playing they were playing their music. They weren't what you called working at your music. You and your sister worked at playing music or worked music. We, I said we right? worked our instruments. We didn't worked play your them. instruments. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. I loved that phrase at the conservatory in, in Canada. Whereas when you went to these other cultures, they were playing, they were enjoying playing their instruments and there was no judgment. Exactly. And, I didn't and, see, I saw people maybe not always singing perfectly on in tune or, you know, playing something very simply like I'd be at a, a beach party in Brazil and and people who were not quote musicians would pick up instruments lying around rattle them you know beat them whatever at whatever level skill level they had they would do that and felt completely comfortable doing that you know it's not this formal would you mind if I touch that yeah. instrument you know <laughs> well we could go in so many directions but let me just first of all go back and I don't want to spoil the story because I want people to be interested in finding out your history as a musician and how you grew up in music. But um, some things happened to you that really changed your approach to being a musician. And someone even told you that you were not really a musician. Did I use those words correctly? I don't know. I can't remember the exact words. It was close. You're not a real musician. You're not a real musician. Yes. And that was after I'd had 17 years of formal training. Ouch. Okay. So <laughs> that what I see that as is that is a systemic from the traditional way of learning an instrument. And um, um, do you have comments not, on that? Yeah, not mm -hmm. exactly. The, okay. the, the person who said that was in the punk tradition. Mm -hmm. And uh, in his conception of what a real, so this is the thing. Uh, a little subtext of the book is that people have lots of different ideas about what a real musician is. You know, uh, the conservatory mm -hmm. system has one idea of what a real musician is. And this fellow from the punk tradition, who was a boyfriend, had an entirely different, a real musician in his tradition was somebody who jammed like crazy and, and made loud music and uh, created their own music, who who improvised, who, who uh, stuck it to the man, who wouldn't adhere to a formal system like I had. So real musician for him meant something different from real musician in the eyes of, of the early teachers I had. But that did hurt. It did pierce something in your soul. And I feel like that probably what was... Uh, triggered maybe this book even in some ways because you didn't have an experience as a musician early on as many others do and uh, would you say that you fell out of love with making music or 
with the tradition so, of that you were grew up in? What do you think? I think that it hurt deeply because even though I had excelled as a cellist in the conservatory system, I had excelled. I, I had hit all the markers that I was supposed to hit yeah. and then some. Because of the way the system is, it, the, the mindset and the messages that are sent to children in the system I was in, I didn't feel like a real musician in that world uh, because it was never enough. And then to feel like not a re real musician in the eyes of my boyfriend in that world either. So where am I a real musician? Mm. You know, what, what <laughs> does it take? I, how do I, and, and when he said that, I, I, obviously it's, it's hurtful to say that to a lover, <laughs> but also at that point I was at my lowest of the low. I had just had that made this extremely heart-wrenching decision to leave music altogether. I had mm. abandoned 17 years of effort. Mm. Uh, and I was one of those kids and I sure, I'm sure your listeners know kids where that's all they do. My mm -hmm. entire identity was invested in being a cellist. It was the only thing that was special about me. The only thing people knew me for the only area in my life. I wasn't pretty. I wasn't sporty. Okay. I was smart, but I wasn't pretty. I wasn't smart, uh, uh, sporty. I wasn't popular. The cello was my thing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I felt like I was nothing when I mm -hmm. left. The, and then to have someone tell me I wasn't even a, a musician, a real musician all those years was just devastating, you know? Mm -hmm. And over time, I I developed my identity in new ways and different ways and learned that, I mean, it's one of the reasons I went into journalism. I wanted to learn about the world. I'd spent so much time in a, in a practice the studio you know mm -hmm. it was a crash course in life for me and and really I'm I will never regret that decision to pivot in that way but of course every decision has pain points connected to it even if it was the right decision mm. and really that gave direction to this book I feel I feel like it's your journey from overcoming such what it's a magnitude worth of hurt and you know what was I doing for all of these years so uh, that I that's what I think I find so fascinating about this book there's the duality of your story along with your incredible research skills and what you found and putting it all together in some meaningful form that we can take to heart as musicians as teachers as human beings so I couldn't be more happy to have you here with me and what's interesting is I do see some instruments behind you I know the listeners can't see you it is not a cello but it looks like maybe an interesting drum or a, a... oh this is a, a Deze and oh. it's it's a it's a gourd that is used to amplify the imbira which is uh, the Zimbabwean instrument I talk about in uh, the, the final chapter. Okay. And uh, you kind of wedge the mbira in there. The mbira is an instrument with many, many keys, and it's about the size of an iPad. And you kind of wedge it in this gourd, which amplifies it. And all the bottle caps attached to it make this ethereal buzzing sound. Um, and the, the thing inside it is another gourd that's basically used as a, a, a percussion instrument. Mm -hmm. Wow. So look at how far you've come. <laughs> Could you ever have ma imagined when you were 17 and said goodbye to music, you thought that you would be talking now about all of these instruments from around the world? Absolutely not. And mm. I also, even when I started exploring other ways of making music, I never, ever in a mil million years 
imagined I'd be talking about my musical journey or, or writing a book about science and health and, and people's intimate, intimate relationships with music, because mm. um, I sort of buried uh, that early life really felt like it had happened to someone else. You know, there was before cello, BC and after mm -hmm. cello mm -hmm. and, and that before cello, no, that's not me. I, I live in a, a city, Vancouver, that is thousands of miles away from where all that happened. So I'm in my life today, I'm not around people who know me as a cellist or ever heard me play. And so even geographically, I'm very far away uh, mm -hmm. from that time um, and, and where those events took place. And I had no intention of reliving them. It was painful to do so, in fact. Mm. Uh, in my garage, I, I took out a box um, while I was doing the research for my book. So one thing to know is that even the personal passages, I I did forensic research. I, you know, I applied the same journalistic rigor to personal passages as I did that really happen? When did it happen? In what way? I looked at my journals. I looked at newspaper clippings from my performances at those times. I looked at uh, reports from the conservatory you'd see I, I was stunned in the in the garage to see that I still had these things the embossed hard you know embossed thick paper stock from this universe this uh, conservatory um, for juried exams when I was very small and there was a number Mm. No comment, no written comments, no description, no, you know, beautifully expressive. No, a number, a number, mm. <laughs> a number, which was really interesting to see as an adult now and a mother. Um, and I will be honest, I, I cried. Mm. <laughs> I cried looking at what was in that box. Mm. Well, that opens nicely or segues uh, nicely to a question that you were hoping that I would ask you. And so I'm going to read it to make sure I say it correctly. What is the neurological argument for avoiding the stringent teaching approaches found in the traditional conservatory model? <laughs> That's a well, big loaded question. <laughs> you know, I, I've thought about this even more since I finished the, the final edits on the book. And, mm -hmm. and it's interesting, you start to think about things and more and more pieces mm -hmm. enter the puzzle. In the book, you'll see, I, I spend quite a lot of time talking about the brain's pleasure and reward circuitry. And I'm sure you've heard about that before. Mm -hmm. We have dopamine, we have other pleasure neurochemicals that are involved in, in the pleasure and reward circuitry. It's super important. It's involved in motivation. It's involved in a lot of the downstream benefits of music because by stimulating that circuitry, pain relief comes, sleep help, sleep aids come, uh, the relief from acute anxiety and depression is also involved in that circuitry. So it's super important. Mm -hmm. um, dopamine is stimulated, which makes us want to keep doing something. Um, however, we also have many other uh, circuits in the brain, and another is called the periventricular circuitry. And that circuitry is what is stimulated when we were under threat. It is the circuit that that prepares us for fight, flight, flee, or freeze, mm -hmm. you know, the, those, mm -hmm. those responses to threat. What we know is that when the periventricular threat circuitry, some people even call it the punishment circuitry, mm. is activated, it shuts down the pleasure and reward circuitry. Mm. 
so mm. that some of those benefits of music, the motivation, the pleasure, the mood uh, benefits, the pain relief are blocked. Mm. Think about that for a second. You want a child to be excited to learn an instrument, but you're blocking the circuitry that allows that to happen. And then mm. they will do it for other reasons out of uh, feeling browbeaten, feeling that that there'll be consequences if they don't. All the negative things will keep them going, but not the positive things. The other side to that is that research, new research has shown that when you are activating the periventricular system, you are impeding learning. Learning is all of a sudden harder because too much, uh, too many brain resources are being diverted to dealing with threat. Mm. <laughs> it makes sense. So if we're teaching children in an environment that causes them to feel stressed and threatened in the in the practice room or in the the private lesson, we are impeding learning and we are removing pleasure. So mm. we're actually getting in the way of what we want to achieve with children. And children will overcome that and still play like perfect automons, but automa automatons, but we're not giving them the musical experience that we would like them to have. So despite a probably a negative environment, let's just call it, but children will come out and be fabulous musicians. Do you think it does come back to them as adults though? You know, um, the body keeps the score. I know <laughs> that you have read that book as well. And yes, so let's talk Actually, about that because that's, that's your experience was quite negative as you learned how to play the cello, even though it was a positive one in certain ways as well. So, you know, we still see children learning and I feel like most of my listeners are going to be sure that their students are learning in a positive environment, but many still do not. So how, how does the brain work then despite you know, having negative input? Well, I think I, I've, I've painted a picture that is perhaps negative, but somewhat true for mm -hmm. many people. And I do think it explains why a lot of people take those first years of, of piano lessons, typically, or other instruments as children and never touch an instrument again. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, there's even research showing that negative early exposure to music will turn people off making music for life, which is mm. really sad. Mm -hmm. So um, if you're, if we're going to look at the people who succeed and excel, despite those teaching practices, we also have to include all the ones who walked away altogether. Mm -hmm. And I'll tell you, my sister, who I mentioned briefly in the book, mm -hmm. was uh, at the same conservatory um, as I was. And <laughs> I quote her in the book saying, it wasn't a lesson if no one cried. Oh, yes. Oh, and yeah, <laughs> and she she left oh. the conservatory because her experience was she left years before I did because her uh, experience was even worse than mine, mm. and it remains one of the biggest pain points in her life. She she never touches the violin. She mm. hasn't had the ability to come back to music in the way I have, which is really sad. She even said that reading my book was painful for mm. her because it was so close to home for her. Um, she has her own journey with music, and I hope someday, I mean, she said actually that it, it was encouraging too, and I hope someday she's able to to um, find space in her life to imagine another way, another uh, approach, or, or feel safe enough to go there, you know. Um, 
so yes, there are people who go through those systems and end up being fabulous musicians. And it's partly because music is so gorgeous. Mm -hmm. So there, I, I, because I was following a narrative, I didn't put all the times when being with the cello was a, a wondrous thing. And mm -hmm. I, I mention it here and there, but I think sometimes the sheer beauty of music can carry someone through. Mm -hmm. And also with time, people start to negotiate their own relationship with music, despite those systems. But you will also read memoirs of famous musicians who talk about their struggles too. And so I think it's a common theme. I, I, I can't tell you how many people have read the book and said, I don't feel I can sing or, or I have an instrument in the closet. Uh, it's a very common mm. issue that we have in our, our, our society. And it's sad, like it's not the most pressing issue that exists in society, but it's, it's, it's such a music is such a wonderful resource for people. So to feel that there are barriers and, and, um, pain points around it is unfortunate because we're being deprived of something that can serve us in life and nourish us. Hey, we'll get right back to the conversation, but I want to make sure you know of one of the ways I avoid the quote, stringent teaching approaches found in the traditional conservatory model that Adriana mentions. I allow, I invite students to choose their repertoire. Now they choose from the repertoire that I carefully curate written by composers I can trust. Composers that understand how to create pedagogically sound pieces that kids like. I can always count on Wendy Stevens of ComposeCreate.com for student pleasers. In fact, Wendy's trademark is music kids love. I know that if you try just one piece, you'll see why my students choose her music again and again. So I'm excited that Wendy is offering to give any Key Ideas listener a popular elementary piece called The Bold Escape for free. Just put the piece in your cart and add the coupon code Key Ideas. That's all one word. Then hit checkout and it's yours to use over and over again. I think you and your students will love it. Look for a link to get your copy of The Bold Escape in the show notes. Now back to my conversation with Adriana. It brings to mind why you and I talked to begin with is because in my own experience, after our son's accident, I could not listen to any music at first because it was just too powerful for me. It was such, it was such a tool for me in so many ways. <clears throat> and then I couldn't listen to music with words for quite some time. And then finally I could, but um, I think you froze here. Are you there yet? It's funny. I, I, I haven't frozen for me, but, okay. <laughs> but inside I was freezing because yeah. I was thinking, oh my God, like I, I feel so emotional even hearing you summarize that mm. again. Uh, sometimes is, there are no words. <laughs> no. And, and I think that's what brought me back to music was, I couldn't find a place for my emotions to land. And uh, the author of The Body Keeps the Score, I'm not going to say his name because I will probably say it incorrectly, but he gave me the language for that. Like, finally, I figured out what music was for me. So that's so powerful to hear that, you know, it, we have to be very careful with those tiny embers that are growing in our studio because we want them to rely on music. 
um, to soothe their soul when they need it. So can you tell me a little bit about the stories? I know you, you talked to me, but did you find that other people had the same relationship or experience with music to help them through hard times? I was uh, amazed how common it is actually. Um, so we have this, this story of, you know, I've talked about the barriers to making music, but fortunately most people don't have as many barriers to listening. And so many people told me that listening to music gave them solace. Uh, I tell a brief story in, in that chapter that you liked uh, the, on mood of uh, a woman I met in Vancouver who's from Colombia. And her, her father was in a, she was in the car when her father rounded a sharp corner in Colombia and collided with a bus. And fortunately, no one was killed. But she explained to me that although she had a driver's license, she couldn't bring herself to get behind the wheel. It was terrifying for her to drive her son anywhere. So for years, they just took the bus and transit wherever she needed to take him for after school programs. But eventually he got, you know, more involved in his activities and, and the locations were further. And she's like, I got to figure out a way to drive because it's not working. And uh, music was her cure. She, she mm. figured out that if she put chill music on in the car, not too much to distract her, it calmed her nerves enough that she could drive and feel comfortable driving again. So that's one example. And uh, there is evidence to support that. They've studied acute anxiety is different from phobias and other types of anxieties. And music as an in intervention for acute anxiety has been studied in dozens of studies against Valium type drugs, comparing mm. music with Valium type drugs in surgical patients who are terrified of being sliced open and having organs taken out and whatever happens in surgery. Mm. So it's been studied in hospital settings and then validated by the Cochrane Group, International Evidence-Based Medicine Research Group. They have done three separate major reviews of music for preoperative anxiety compared with Valium type drugs and given music thumbs up, mm. which is quite amazing it's uh, and the studies generally it's it's half an hour of music listening the night before surgery and half an hour the day of that's it mm. wow fascinating now we could go on and on about the science <laughs> that yeah. you have uncovered and researched and applied but I'm also fascinated by the travels that you took for this book and I, I can't remember all the countries you visited but I, I am curious did you have one trip that what rose above all the others I didn't even fit all, all the countries in. So I left out a, a trip to India. Oh, wow. I left out a trip to Cuba. I left out trips to Mexico. I, I left out a lot. Uh, but certainly everywhere I've gone to, I've sought out music. Um, even when I was in Europe with my son and husband on our gap year, when we were in Granada, Spain, we went to caves where they had um uh, they had there, it's okay to call someone a gypsy. I know that term is becoming frowned upon. I think Romani is now the term, but there they still use that word, the the, the people themselves. But they do uh, uh, flamenco performances in caves where they mm. lived, which is really neat to see. 
um, in that setting, it, it takes on other meanings to hear that music and see that dance in that setting that where people have performed that music for hundreds of years. So wherever I go, I seek out music of the, the place and, um, and have various experiences. One that stood out, I would have to say was Zimbabwe, mainly because I went to Zimbabwe for a musical adventure. I had set it up for that reason. And in the book, I talk about how I met um, a, mus a musician from Zimbabwe at a, a festival in Vancouver, and he told me about his village in uh, rural Zimbabwe, so about four hours' journey from Harare, which is the capital. And in this village, uh, they had he had purchased the land. He he um, did a PhD at the University of Toronto in social justice, etc. And he had purchased the land with the idea of uh, reclaiming uh, Zimbabwean Indigenous ways of healing, ways of living, ways of musicking, um, and ways of uh, Zimbabwean um, cosmology, it was the word we might use, Shona would be the the, the term for the people. Um, and that that cosmology exists in many parts of Zimbabwe, but they, they had decided to create a community that upheld those values and and some of that way of life um and so i was very curious about this and he facilitated my visit by by uh having me be welcome and told telling me the steps to getting there <laughs> and mm. you know because when you when you go there uh they don't have refrigeration uh mm. you know uh so it was it involved a stop along the way to buy food for the vi the village as a guest and um figuring out well what can be cooked <laughs> without mm -hmm. res what can be you know I didn't know what they ate so I was trying to figure it out um and uh did some cooking myself over the fire uh and oh wow yeah yeah it took five hours oh. to make a vat of beans for the village and had to figure out what with the flavorings I use be to their taste I don't know yes. <laughs> you know and so there was uh, yeah, cutting, and they had one knife for the whole village with no handle. The handle had broken off, so you have the one oh. cooking knife, and it was it was neat and challenging, and uh, an incredible experience, um, mm. which I did with my family, and uh, very joyful. Uh, but I was learning about the embedded nature of music in that community, mm. deeply embedded in everything that was done. And when you say embedded, that doesn't sound like culture here in the States or in Canada. It sounds completely different. Embedded, yeah. It means uh, picking up an instrument in between jobs. It means singing in the fields. It means this is what we do after dinner mm. together. It mm -hmm. means we're dancing. We're, we're sometimes we invite neighboring villagers to party with us and and rejoice and sing and dance. Um, but music being done by people, everyone, babies too, bopping along uh, many times a day. And you use the word musicking. Have you coined that? No, no, mm. that that goes, uh, that was a musicologist in Australia. And I think even he, I'm not sure if he coined it or someone did before him, but he sort of popularized that, that musicking is a verb. It's, it's, um, music is not a product. It's not, uh, something on, on paper. It's not a recording. It's not an instrument. It's something we do more enjoyably together. It's something humans do and do 
can mean listening, deep listening. That is a verb that uh, listening in that concept is musicking too, because what I go through in chapter two is, is the, the evolutionary roots of music and the cognitive processes involved in simply processing and enjoying music are very complex and not shared by all mammal, mammals in the same way. So what I want people to take from the book is that we are all deeply musical. We are wired for music. If we love music, if we hear it as music, we are wired for music. And very, very few people lack that ability to enjoy music. It's it's considered a neurological condition. It's so rare. I was going to ask you, how would you like to end this conversation? And I was going to ask you, how what takeaways would you like people to leave by uh, from reading your book and you just answered that question are there any other takeaways because this is what it's kind of a sciencey book it's kind of a research book it's kind of a reporter book and it's also a personal book so uh, where does it fit on the library shelf I believe so marketers and publishers have they think very carefully about yeah. strategies like that and I think it's in the science category and in the wellness category in most mm -hmm. bookshops and interestingly on amazon.ca um the I think in you have different metrics for amazon.com mm -hmm. but you know they have those algorithms that say frequently bought together um mine is paired with the myth of normal which is the new book by Dr. Gabor Mate around trauma as a society, which is very interesting oh. that, that they're saying frequently bought together. And in a way it makes sense because my book is sort of a broad view at uh, our deep wiring for music and the interruptions in that deep wiring that have occurred through the, the Western European cultural lens. I mean, the book doesn't read so so academic and pointy headed as mm -hmm. I just said it. But it also um, the author of uh, The Body Keeps the Score, Dr. Bessel van der Kolk, uh, has invited me to give a presentation at his international trauma conference, which in Boston in May, which completely surprised me because again, <laughs> it's a book about music and my musical pain points and music in the brain and whatnot. But People uh, like him see healing, music as a healing modality for some of the issues that they are uh, specialists in. And I think that might be, as you you saw in your own healing after Carter's experience, that may be something that becomes even more emphasized in, in, in trauma research. Uh, I, I mean, I didn't mis misrepresent myself. I'm not a clinician. I'm not an academic. But I guess he felt felt the message would be one that we need more of perhaps if mm -hmm. I, I don't actually know what was in his head but I was very uh very um proud to be invited and I I look forward to working with him on the presentation and see what he has in mind mm. um so that was one thing the other part is that what I'm hearing from people is that my book is reminding them it's helping it's sort of shining light on things that they already do and already and and they're feeling um seen and validated as you said by little details that i would never imagine and everybody's different everyone's i 
noticing something different that is meaningful to them. And so the core message of the book is to encourage and inspire people to get the most out of their relationship to music at whatever point it might be and whatever it might be if it's a painful relationship if it's a joyful one if it's um, a tool for them I think there's something in the book that speaks to those different intersections with music mm. I'm also totally oh go ahead Oh, sorry. I was going to say, I'm also hearing from people, some reviewers have said this, and then also um, individuals. So yesterday I got an, uh, beautiful comments from uh, the editor-in-chief of Canada's Association for Music Therapy Journal. Um, and people are saying that they're enjoying, I, I, I wrote, you'll see each chapter is kind of written in chunks. They're, they're mm -hmm. not, no passage runs on for more than a page to three pages. Uh, and interestingly, people are telling me that they're finding they're enjoying writing, reading the book, reading a chunk, putting it down, thinking about it, maybe going to listen to the music I've talked about, and then coming back or pondering it for a little bit. And, and people are saying, although it's a short book, they're enjoying taking time with it and, and putting it down, picking it up again. And I think the way it's structured allows for that. Although it is, you do need to read it in order. Mm -hmm. Oh, it was because I listened to it first. It's been nice to now see it on the page and like, oh, yes, I remember that quote or, oh, yes, I remember <laughs> that. So I think I will put some of my favorite quotes uh, in this podcast as well, because the ones that really resonated with me in particular. So yes, I can see how people would personalize this book. And let me just step back and say congratulations for getting the invitation to speak with uh, doctor, help me again, Dr. Bessel van der Kolk. Thank you. Because I read that book. It was very soon after Carter's accident. I wonder if I even started it before, but I thought it was so fascinating. And then when he got to the music section, I was so excited and it was validating and I wished he would have written a lot more about it. So I'm so excited that he has, um, what paired up with you partnered with you on this journey with music and trauma, because I, I do think that, hmm, there's some connections there and I would love to know more about that research. Well, and I'd like to compliment you on your podcasting because you have a beautiful voice and hmm. uh, I've now done many podcasts, uh, including with the BBC science podcast and this kind of thing. Uh, and uh, you do a, a great job. So as, as the BBC does too, of course, <laughs> but, but, but I'm saying I've, I've now done quite a few of them and, and, uh, I think you're really well organized and your questions are, are great and spot on. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you so much. Well, Adriana, this has just been such a treat. Um, I could go on and on about how honored I am, number one, that you're here with me, but also the impact that your book has had. And I just cannot wait for others to share, um, in, I don't know, the validation that I felt, but also share in the knowledge that uh, what they're doing is important because I am mm -hmm. speaking to mostly piano teachers, but to some music teachers or parents of students who are taking music lessons right now. And we have an important uh, job right now, and you have just proven that. And I hope that somehow we can start embedding music in our culture again. I love that word even more and more. I think, you know, I think we are all realizing how important it is. And um, especially during the pandemic, 
you know, we, we missed going yeah. to the concerts, missed being with other people, listening to things with other people, seeing music live. So, um, we definitely are wired for music and thank you for, uh, exposing us to all the facts behind what that really means. Thank you again for being who you are. <laughs> oh, thank you. I do like to ask people for a closing quote, and I know you have one. Do you, would you mind sharing that with us? Yes. Uh, this is a quote from the late uh, neo-expressionist artist Jean-Michel Basquiat, who was in New York in the 80s. And I think, I don't know the exact year of his death, but he wrote this quote or said this, art is how we decorate space. Music is how we decorate time. Mm. Beautiful. Mm. Wonderful. And my mother is an artist and I happen to be a musician, so I couldn't agree with that statement uh, anymore. So thank you so much for joining me and all the best in your promotion of your book and congratulations. Well done. Hey, thank you so much. You may not have caught the quote because of a connection glitch. So here it is one more time. Art is how we decorate space. Music is how we decorate time. Yes, Adriana's book shares her exploration of the parallels between traditional healing strategies and new discoveries in music as medicine. Although her thorough research is compelling, my gushing on and on about Wired for Music stems from what makes it stand out from other research-based books. Wired for Music reveals the intimate and human side of music making. Through her transparent and diligent writing, Adriana shares facts about and also breathes life and a literal backbone into the transformative and magnetic power of music. Make sure to head to the show notes to grab a copy of Wired for Music and to learn more about Adriana. In addition, find a link to Forte so you can set up your free account and make sure to enter key ideas to grab your free sheet music from Wendy Stevens. This is Key Ideas and I'm Leela Viss. See you in the trenches. Decorating time with music. <laughs>